Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou. I'm here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain. My mind is like freaking out because of this story that's in the news. Oh, but uh, the one we were just that talking you about. you just told me about. Earth's code. Yes. Wow. <laughs> I remember. Yeah. Well, we, listen, we've dropped our entire <laughs> schedule today. We're going to just talk about cheating chess and anal beads. Wow. Which I'm pretty sure we can say on air. Yes. I remember uh, like a week ago. I forget exactly when, but I remember seeing the headline about a chess grandmaster being defeated and then very quickly uh, leaving and withdrawing from a competition. And immediately everyone said. He thinks it's dirty. He thinks something, something's wrong. And this grandmaster, I think his name is Magnus Nielsen, um, tweeted, you know, love the competition, looking forward to being back, and then tweeted a, a cryptic video of a football manager saying, uh, I can't speak. If I speak, I'll get in trouble. So, of course, you know, he's being coy and suggesting cheating. So apparently now the, the rumor in the chess world that has made it to Twitter that apparently Elon Musk himself has, has weighed in on. Of course. Um, and I don't know where this rumor originated, but that uh, was that the, the guy who beat him had someone using an AI computer to play the match. He was, he was sending him somehow messages via a remote vibrating device as to what the perfect move would be to match the grandmasters, and that's how he won. So Absolutely stunning. These un- unfounded rumors are taking the world by storm. I don't know where they came from. Certainly, though, I mean, the cheating thing seems to be, uh, I mean, I'm, I can't say if it's true or not, right. but uh, obviously suspected from the start. And now we're talking about the mechanism. Wow. Yes. Wow. Yeah. We're actually going to follow up on that okay. because that is <laughs> fascinating to me. Chess cheating. It's like chess in the Vatican are sort enough. of mysterious in their in their in similar ways somehow like Vatican protocol intricacies which also have been a thing that's been going on that we haven't been talking about because again it's sort of in the weeds but uh uh the Pope Francis uh disbanding certain orders and shifting the leadership of other orders and stuff like that and and then perhaps trying to avoid a Vatican coup right yeah and then rumors attributed to anonymous senior Vatican officials saying that he's going to retire Mm -hmm. and for the first time ever in the history of Christianity we're going to have two popes emeritus and an actual pope man crazy the wars we could have had back in the day (laughs) over that situation There's actually a lot going on today. We're going to talk about about elections in Europe. Uh, The right wing seems to be ascendant. We mentioned yesterday that it appears that in a very, very close election in Sweden, the right wing opposition has actually won that election. It's not been confirmed yet. But there was a piece in The New York Times yesterday that we we touched on just ever so briefly. I wanted to to repeat it today. It looks like when Italy has its next election, the right wing is going to win there. And there's a, a woman whose name escapes me right now, who is a, a year ago was, was uh, on the fringe of Italian politics as the head of a, a very Donald Trump-like party, um, who now appears to be the next are going to be the next Italian prime minister. Uh, she is, let's see. Do we have a rumble feed? Yes, we have a rumble feed. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to tell somebody just texted me saying we have no rumble feed, oh. but we do. 
but she she uh, has expressed, for example, um, anti-gay sentiments, uh, anti-left sentiments, anti-immigrant sentiments, uh, and this very well could be a um, a trend mm-hmm. in in Western Europe. Something that bears watching. God knows we've had our own uh, history over the last ten years with uh, with the populist right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's one thing. Another thing that is happening today is what appears to be the ending of the the Durham investigation. You know, it was, uh, wow, years ago now that Barack Obama appointed John Durham to look at allegations that uh, the Trump campaign was involved with the Russian government or the Russian government was attempting to influence the Trump campaign in the end, that turned out to be just simply— Barack Obama thought it started in 2019. No, it was earlier. Yeah, Durham was earlier. Um, and uh, it turns out to be nothing to it. Uh, there, there are two people, Michael Sussman and uh, a Russian guy, who pleaded guilty to—well, uh, Sussman pleaded not guilty, but anyway, who were charged with lying to the FBI, which is a process felony. It's a throwaway uh, charge. And otherwise, there was nothing behind it. Although the Igor Danchenko indictment to me is the one that still seems pretty interesting because Hmm. it it was the indictment against him. And again, still just an indictment, but was basically that he had made up some of the key allegations in this steel dossier that led to uh, the whole Russiagate conflagration. Correct. And so, yeah, it's a it's a process crime. But if there were serious consequences. Yeah, there were. And it's interesting. I mean, on one hand, you can say and a a lot of people uh, online who were sort of Russiagate believers are saying uh, the ending of this shows what nonsense it was uh, to imagine that this was political in any way and that there was any kind of, you know, conspiracy against Donald Trump in uh, in the FBI and in U.S. law enforcement. I think it. It will be interesting to see what actually comes out, because I think the other interesting possibility is that, no, you didn't. You never needed a conspiracy within the FBI to take down Donald Trump. You needed this one dude to make up some particularly uh, some, you know, inflammatory things Mm -hmm. for this dossier. And then you needed a U.S. press. Who, right, to run with who it. ran with it and wouldn't drop it and and lost themselves in the smoke. Yes. Uh, so I don't know. I I think it, a little bit of time will tell what what this actually is, what this actually points to. But certainly, and, you know, I, I all along, you know, Russia has been a real indictment of the press. And we we have to see what the final fallout is because, uh, you know, the the I say this all the time, but the federal sentencing guidelines for lying to the FBI first offense are zero to six months in prison. Yeah. Nobody gets six months in prison. Nobody. Yeah. Um, they usually get 12 months or 18 months of probation. So we'll, we'll see what this ends up with because you're right. There were serious consequences to these. Yeah. So we'll see. There's another thing that happened yesterday that I was just fascinated by. And this was the testimony on Capitol Hill on the Senate side by, by the former head of security for Twitter. We're going to go into detail on this with Chris Garofa later in the show. But this guy's testimony was absolutely explosive. And one of the things that I was so interested to see was the, um, the, the power with which Twitter's leadership condemned him yesterday. 
at the end of the testimony. He really got to these people. And uh, one of the interesting things, too, was that the the positive responses to his testimony were utterly bipartisan, hmm. completely, totally bipartisan. Mm-hmm. Like I say, we're going to talk about that at length with uh, Chris Garafa later in the show. Um, you wanted to talk about this U.N. report on on modern slavery. It's actually on the rise. Yeah, it's. we're going to talk about this in the end of the show. It is very interesting to me. They found that it is increased over the past five years. Uh, I also think it's interesting that they say they can't, they don't know why. It's inexplicable that modern slavery is on the increase. I don't know. The person we are going to talk to uh, was one of the men who represented uh, a group of, uh, I believe, Malian men who say they were uh, forced to work as as, uh, child slaves on coca plantations and who attempted to uh, nestle Cargill, I forget exactly. I think it was against Nestle um, in the U.S. Supreme Court. And the U.S. Supreme Court basically said this isn't the appropriate venue for it. Wow. So, you know, if you ask how is modern slavery being facilitated, it would probably be end end users and uh, beneficiaries of the process uh, refusing to accept any responsibility for the supply chains that bring them their luxury goods. Uh, so I think that's an interesting conversation to have later. I agree with you. The other big story that's still going on uh, is this the potential for this railway strike. Oh, my God. As far as I can see, tens of thousands of railway workers are still prepared to walk out or strike after Friday. Uh, nothing has been announced yet. Uh, but as we said yesterday, the workers of the unions that are holding out have authorized a strike. And as of yesterday, at least one of the unions that is holding out, polled its members on the industry's latest proposal, and 78% said reject it. Wow. So, the, we think we had trouble with supply chain during COVID. This is going to shut the economy down. Oh, yeah. And so we have uh, Marty Walsh, Labor Secretary Marty Walsh, uh, meeting with union mem- members and uh, industry representatives today. The White House is reviewing contingency plans to help ensure that essential products can still reach their destinations using highways, ports, and waterways. This is according to people who spoke to the Washington Post. Uh, You have Steny Hoyer, the House Majority Leader, saying since Monday has been saying that Congress could act if a strike appears imminent. saying a railroad strike at this point in time would be extraordinarily detrimental to our economy. We want to avoid it. The president has certain authorities he can exercise. Congress can pass legislation. We want to avoid a crippling railroad strike. Um, I wanted to figure out exactly what power the government has. I went to the website Freight Waves. Uh, They said Congress could step in. Congress could actually impose contractual terms. Really? This is what Freight Waves said. I'm shocked by that. They could... Extend the status quo and send the parties back to the negotiating table Uh saying we're going to give you more time. Or they could send the dispute to arbitration like they did with baseball. And I guess what you would expect to happen is they find an agreement because they both fear the results of of independent arbitration. Yeah. Um, The Hill reported just this morning that Republican senators have introduced a resolution to impose a new contract if negotiations collapse. Uh, Democrats say they would like to pass legislation to block a rail shutdown if necessary. So it was Democratic wow. Party wow. legislating to avoid a strike. Yeah, and le- legislating on, on, the, on the corporate side. It seems like. Rather than on the labor side. Yeah. 
That's and it's the modern worth Democratic noting, Party. You know, the conductors and signalmen, a, a union representing those workers, are saying they have to be on call for up to two weeks at a time, that in that two-week period they have to drop everything at any time to be at work, and that exceptions aren't made for things like family emergencies or medical emergencies. Uh, and this fellow who is an engineer, uh, activist, and a member of one of these unions uh, highlighted an online explanation by a rail worker uh, of what this actually means. Because if you look at it, you see like, well, these guys get, they get like two weeks vacation or three weeks vacation. They get these days off. Like that doesn't sound so bad. And so this union member said, yeah, but we don't get weekends. So, you know, if you're looking at time off, uh, paid time off that says we get three weeks and you get nine personal days. That sounds like a lot. That sounds like a lot if you are working a job where you work five days and you have two days off every weekend. That is not, that's 30 days for the entire year, not two times 52 plus right. whatever your paid leave is. Wow. Is. Yeah. And so, I mean, you know, again, this is, uh, this is coming from a member of this union who's saying, yeah, these are the conditions that we are trying to change. It's also worth, I think, noting According to reporting by More Perfect Union, uh, leading U.S. freight carriers over the past 20 years have hugely increased their profits while cutting their workforce. Yes. So what they spend on their workers has not kept pace with the rate of profit increase, not even close. To use the example of Union Pacific, again, according to this uh, More Perfect Union story, in 2000, Union Pacific employed 50,000 people and generated uh, $11.8 billion dollars. Today, Union Pacific employs almost 18,000 fewer people, but manages to earn 85% more in revenue each year, and this situation is common across the industry. So trains that were once staffed with five workers are now staffed with two. Carriers hope to, to cut that even further, and so then what happens is you have more workers on call more of the time because the companies don't want to eat into their profits by spending more money on labor. You know, we should add, too, that although there are many months left on on the contract that uh, that UPS has with its workers, they are so far apart at this early stage that there's already talk of a UPS strike. And UPS is responsible. I think I saw the statistic the other day for 24 percent of the of the country's packages. If UPS goes on strike. It's going to be almost equally detrimental to the U.S. economy. So, uh, you know, these companies have to get with their workers and figure something out. And, you know, you have Warren Buffett here uh, popping up, right? Warren Buffett is sort of gets cast weirdly as like the working man's billionaire. Right. Which is not. But he's one of the he owns the parent company of one of these railways, uh, BNSF Railway. Bernie Sanders is pointing out that, you know, Warren Buffett is worth $100 billion. He became $36 billion richer during the pandemic. And if he wanted to put his money where his mouth was, he would, you know. Pay his workers. Yeah, yeah. Maybe support support them coming to an agreement with these workers that gives in on some of the conditions that they're asking for. Right. Uh, so that's interesting. Also, I thought, I, I know we have our next guest and I, I want to get to him, but I got this notice today that the U.S., through the Department of Treasury and Department of State, uh, has set up a fund to benefit the people of Afghanistan. Oh, it's the Afghan fund. Well, that's it's so got nice. $3.5 billion. <laughs> so this is the what half of the money of Afghan central bank reserves that we had frozen. Yes. Now we're going to turn it into this fund that we are going to disperse 
not to the Taliban, but through other avenues to the people of Afghanistan. Which all sounds well, yeah. I mean, it sounds you know whatever. You can go okay, good. Look, they're giving it back. We just had to spend one year of people like starving to death, and now now here we go. A question I have though: There's all this talk about we're working with our international partners, we're working with NGOs. Da 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 da. Does this mean that that funds from the Afghan Central Bank are going to be paid to these workers who are going to be engaged in the projects of of dispersing them. You know what I mean? So Afghan money is going to go to pay uh, what is sometimes truthfully or uncharitably called the, the aid industrial complex right. that is mostly Western workers. Is right. that how it's going to work? Probably. And I'll tell yeah, you something. It's, it's sneaky. We, it's, a, it's a little bit sneaky. It's very sneaky. In 2002, we started uh, work to build an electrical, an electrical grid in Helmand province in southern Afghanistan. And when it was about three quarters of the way done, uh, the Taliban blew it up. And so we started building it again, and they blew it up again, and then they blew it up a third time. And here we are 21 years later, and there is no coordinated electrical grid in southern Afghanistan. So now what are we going to do with this money? We're going to start funneling it to our quote-unquote partners so they can do what with it? Try to build an electrical grid? Yeah. Come on. Yeah. And probably pay the salaries of, uh, yeah. uh, you know, advisors and exactly. whatever else who are contractors, from, uh, Germany or Belgium yeah. or the United States or wherever. Exactly. Yeah. Just again, it's like a way to take some of that money and give some of it back, but not all of it. Not all of it. Anyway. Good luck um, with that. You know what? I, I want to get into this conversation about European politics. I think we're going to be bold and just skip this break. Okay. And go straight into it. So we we started the show saying we we're, we we're going to talk about this election in Sweden, uh, which is it, it, now uh, with with 98% of districts counted uh, so far, the right wing opposition block is in the lead. It seems unlikely that, you know, the, the few remaining votes to be counted overseas votes are going to change that result. And so the question people are asking is why? Um, it will result in a change of government. Sweden has been uh, ruled by a, a left-wing bloc. Uh, and the Sweden Democrats in particular, the farthest right party of this right-wing bloc, got nearly 21% of the vote after a campaign that focused on law and order issues and migration. Sweden has seen rising gun violence over the past decade. It spent several years recently as the rape capital of the EU. And this year it could see the most shootings ever, which would break the 2020 record. I will say that number is something like 300, which as an American is, but we're a much bigger country than Sweden as well. Yes. Um, it is worth noting that the Sweden Democrats are, I was going to write, like, they're not just any old European right-wing party, but there are lots of Nazis in those parties. But it is, it is generally described as never having actually been a Nazi party, but its early leadership contained an actual Nazi volunteer from Sweden. So he volunteered to join the SS uh, and others who had participated in explicitly neo-Nazi organizations. This is also talking about, we're talking about 1988, not a century ago. Right. In the early 2000s, the party went through a purge of extremists. It now formally disavows Nazism. Uh, it is worth mentioning that a month ago, Swedish research 
group Acta Publica found that 289 politicians from parties represented in parliament were involved in either racist or Nazi activities, and 214 of them were from the Sweden Democrats. Um, and so I want to get into, you know, what what exactly ha- has happened here? Is this the right winning or the left losing? And what are the sort of broader regional implications? And joining us for this, we have writer and journalist Dan Lazar. Dan, thanks for being here. Uh, thanks for having me. So, you know, these these Sweden Democrats, they run on law and order. They run on crime. They call for strictly limiting migration uh, and they are leading. And I wonder what you think resonated with voters. And and should we consider this, you know, a a victory for the right or more of a, a loss for the left? Well, I think it's both. But it, it really is a big deal. I mean, uh, I mean, Sweden is, is shifting. uh dramatically to the right uh, for a whole confluence of reasons. But this is the same, the same constellation that's, that's at, at work in Italy, where Georgia Maloney is, the, you know, is likely to become prime minister in, uh, uh, later this month uh, in France, elsewhere, and certainly in Eastern Europe as well. I mean, first of all, uh, 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 Sweden has seen a huge refugee influx especially since 2015, as a result of the uh, America's wars in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, you know, this, this, you know, led, you know, resulted in a, in a flood of, of humanity, you know, flowing to Sweden uh, with very disruptive uh, consequences. But the point is, it was really Western policy, especially U.S. policy, mm-hmm. that was be, uh, behind this. Uh, in addition, uh, uh, Sweden has become a center of the European drug trade. With all that implies, gang violence and gang violence intersecting, you know, with the minority influx, Islamism, and of course a growing, you know, a growing uh, uh, reaction among the, you know, among the native population. So the result is the same, the usual toxic mix. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and so and so you have, you know, a, 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 a Swedish far rightist traveled to a, I forgot what city it was, to, to burn a copy of the Koran. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Riots erupted. Uh, the Swedish far right pointed to the riots as an example of the, you know, the Islamist threat bearing down on their country. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's just the it's the classic destabilization, you know, far right drift that that all these forces are combining to create. Mm-hmm. I think it's Malmo, this southern city that has a very yeah. high immigrant population and mm-hmm. also has a, a university, you know. But right. So, I mean, the question is, again, like, yeah, the popular wisdom is that this is about migration. Um, and crime, but crime is always tied to to migration. So, what did what did Sweden's government do wrong? Because you know, it, it, you had stories. You know, it, it, Sweden uh, seems to really try to facilitate the integration of new migrants into Sweden. Right? They offer. Uh, I think the government website says they offer two years worth of language programs. 
job counseling, civics lessons. I mean, I also see people saying, yeah, they offer that, but it's really hard to get in. There aren't enough spaces. uh, And sometimes the quality is poor. But it doesn't seem as though if you are an immigrant to Sweden, you are kind of, uh, you know, just chucked out there on your own to figure it out. I have also seen reports that um, while Sweden does not accept all of its asylum seekers, it doesn't actually do a very good job of deporting people whose asylum applications are rejected because there's no agency that really wants to get in to that uh, kind of unsavory business, sort of understandably. But, you know, it, it. at least on paper, it seemed like they they went to a lot of trouble to help this uh, this process not be overwhelming for either population, and it doesn't seem to have worked. Well, you know, I mean, I mean, first of all, Sweden is only one small, you know, government, one small state, yeah. in a larger European city. So, you know, so uh, um, so first of all, the the numbers in in two thousand fifteen were overwhelming. Mm-hmm. I think one hundred and sixty thousand refugees entered Sweden. Um, that the various government agencies were overwhelmed. And as you report, you know, the, the language classes, the civics, civics classes, there were long waits, uh, long lines uh, to get in. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, you know, and, the, and the, the, the drug trade, you know, introduced a, 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 another explosive element, um, which, you know, which led to crime and, and Islamism and, and, you know, and, uh, and deepening poverty and breakdown in the immigrant community, um, and then you have this, you know, this the growth of the uh, of the right wing in the in the native population, mm-hmm. um, but also you know the, the the war, you know, the the war in the Ukraine. I mean, it mm-hmm. didn't help when the Social Democrats, you know, essentially started, you know, accusing the right wing coalition of being, you know, of being arms of Russia. Mm-hmm. You know, and baiting them as security threats, and 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 issuing spurious warnings about Russian election interference. Mm-hmm. You know, so so therefore, you know, so therefore the government, you know, engaged in the usual kind of, you know, Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton, you know, Russia baiting, which of course worked to the benefit of the right because it was so so hollow and fraudulent. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so and and just wound up discrediting the social democrats. So you know, so you have a you have just generally a a deteriorating, you know, social picture, mm-hmm. uh, and and the and since the the social democrats are you know are just are just fading so strongly, um, you know, people the only party that seems to have an answer that seems to offer a solid alternative, is the far right. That's the one that that voters are gravitating to. Well, this is a comparison that I make in the in the U.S. a lot, partly because I also I don't like this narrative of like, uh, you know, except you, you accept a bunch of immigrants and asylum seekers and then inevitably you see crime, violent crime, blah, blah, blah. And people react. Right. I, I don't think that that's a, you know, an inevitable step. One, two, three, four. And I, I wonder if it's the same as, you know, I think a problem in the United States is that you know, with the U.S. Democratic Party, which I think in Europe would be seen as pretty right wing. But, you know, we have our uh, quote unquote left wing party is, is 
incapable of confronting capitalism. Mm -hmm. And so it's increasingly incapable of really uh, providing solutions. And people can see that, right? People can see that you are just tinkering around the edges and get really um, tired of it, right? And so maybe you don't necessarily go and then vote for the extreme right party, but maybe you don't, you don't get involved. And I wonder if that's a, you know, there's some level of that kind of burnout happening here. Oh yeah, you know, it's, you know, it's, it, I mean, tinkering around, around the edges is, is putting it really kindly. Right. Yes. I mean, you know, the the the, the, the Democrats, you know, they they they, they denounce uh, all the people who've been left out, who are who are PO'd, who are who are alienated. They denounce them as deplorables. They accuse them of being racist mm-hmm. and retrograde, et cetera. You know, so so they 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 they, they essentially you know respond in a very moralistic snobbish way. Mm-hmm. And that has been the story of the Democrats since, you know, since Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the same thing is true in, uh, in, in Sweden, mm-hmm. where, where the, the social Democrats essentially adopt the same attitudes. They look down their nose on, the, uh, on, on all the ordinary people who are upset about things that are happening in their country, upset about the growth of violence. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, blame into- you know, they blame them for the breakdown. Uh, meanwhile, they take part in, in NATO's wars. Mm-hmm. They back American misadventures in the Middle East. Um, you know, and it's just, it just is, it, it's just, they're, they're, it's almost as if they wanted to lose. It's almost as if they wanted to undermine mm-hmm. their own grip on power. I want to also ask about uh, branding, right, and and image changing. Uh, we talked on the show, of course, about the French parliamentary elections and the last presidential election and, you know, the strong showing of Marine Le Pen and, and the National Rally Party. Uh, and a lot of people we spoke to attributed that to a very a, a sort of softening of that party's stances, distancing itself from its hardline past and uh, and reshaping its image as, you know, ra- rational and, and reasonable and, and of the times. And certainly the Sweden Democrats have have been undergoing, uh, you know, an image rehabilitation since the early 2000s. Uh, do you think that this is, you know, that this is part of that success where they've gone, OK, people actually don't really want to hear the extremist stuff. We'll just walk away from that and see, you know, see if we can re- rebrand ourselves to some success. Well, I think it goes both ways. I mean, uh, I mean, I mean, Ackerson, Yimmy Ackerson, the uh, head of the uh, Swedish uh, Sweden's Democrats, you know, has a, you know, he he took down the old Viking posters mm-hmm. that the party used to used to uh, used to put up and replaced them with you know with with floral designs. Nice. Know? So definitely, it's, a, it's an attempt to sort of like you know make the party seem kinder and gentler. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it, but it, it's done with a week a wink and a nod. Um, yeah, the same thing is with uh, with Maloney's uh, Fratelli d'Italia, uh, you know, where the, the 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 most overt, you know, fascist symbols are are cast aside, and she does that. She does a excellent job of portraying herself. You know, it's just sort of like you know, like a kind of a a conservative appalled by all the the woke liberalism that's taking hold in in a uh, in in Italy, and you know, and does a really good job of of appealing to the broad conservative masses who are upset by what's happening to their country. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, but, but yes, but, but, it, but it's definitely a, a major swing to the far right. And, and I think that this process is not going to stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the more the swing, you know, intensifies, the more overt the fascist uh, symbology will become. I mean, it won't do anything. This, if, uh, 
the problem will intensify because a swing to the right and shutting your borders to migrants is going to do nothing to stop the forces driving those. I think some of Sweden's biggest migrant populations are Syrians, are Iraqis. And as you say, these are people who are driven by wars in their country Mm -hmm. that are started or facilitated over years and decades by the United States. And and just trying to ban them from entering is not going to change that pressure. No. And, you know, by the way, uh, Erdogan of Turkey has sponsored a Islamic fundamentalist party in Sweden. Oh, great. Which, you know, which, which is getting a, you know, which is causing a big ruckus. I don't know how many votes they'll get, but they, you know, but their their parades, you know, with a with green Islamic sign of flags, mm-hmm. uh, is causing shock and is a godsend to the Swedish Democrats. Mm-hmm. I mean, thank you, thank you, Erdogan. Yeah. Uh, you know, so so all these international, and of course, you know, all, you know, Erdogan, of course, wants to hold Sweden's. And they're still going to extradite a bunch fire. of Kurdish leaders to sure. him. Yeah. 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 So, you know, so all these international forces are, are, are you know, are, are, you know, are bearing down on this one small country, but they're bearing down in every country. Well, yeah. I mean, look at the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the Ukrainian country, the, the, the Ukrainian government has also done a branding change. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the, you know, even, even the Azov battalion got rid of that, uh, of that symbol, the, the wolf's angle, mm-hmm. you know, and replaced it with something, something a little bit more, you know, uh, um, a little more uh, less offensive. The puppies angle sort of show that they that they are they they are not they're not they're they're now they're no longer the old bad Nazis now they're the the good soft Nazis. Yeah, yeah. Well, so what does this mean for the region? Right, we have uh, this. It seems inevitable victory of the right in Sweden. Uh, they are already calling the election for the far right in Italy, as you mentioned. Uh, we have, of course, uh, you know Macron. Not, uh, you know, the far right is not victorious in France, but has made big gains. What does this mean for for Europe? Uh, and I guess what is, you know, what does the EU look like if suddenly you have a lot more right wing governments there? Well, the, 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 the Democrats, the Swedish Democrats are Eurosceptic, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and very, you know, with regard to the EU. I mean, we're entering into an age of nationalism mm-hmm. and uh, and nationalism is a kind of a self feeding phenomenon. Uh, you know, the, 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 more, the more it grows, the more national conflicts erupt, and the more, therefore, the more nationalist passions are excited. So we're seeing a, a major wave of nationalism sweeping Europe from, uh, you know, from, uh, from Italy to Eastern Europe and now Scandinavia, uh, and, uh, and it's going to lead to conflict, and it's going to lead to greater and greater uh, right-wing extremism. Chance this nationalism is going to lead to some NATO skepticism as well, because that would certainly be complicated. Uh, yes, I imagine it will lead to NATO skepticism, uh, but um, you know, but but that, as you said, that's complicated. Yeah. You know, it could, that that could that could you know split a thousand different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, and the, the war in Ukraine, you know, I mean, that's complicated as well. But that certainly is not popular mm-hmm. uh, in the um, in in places like Sweden. And it's especially unpopular with these left out, you know, uh, right wing elements who feel that their their country has left them behind and don't understand, you know, why they're being dragged to this military conflict in the, uh, you know, hundreds of miles away. Mm-hmm. And before we let you go, Dan, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on this announcement today about the the Afghan fund that the U.S. is going to unfreeze about half 
if I recall correctly, about half of the frozen Afghan assets uh, that we've been sitting on for the past year or so, and they are going to disperse them in a targeted manner through international partners to the Afghan people, somehow bypassing the Taliban, which, you know, I mean, it's good if some of the money gets to the Afghan people. My question is, is this just a sort of sneaky way of taking Afghan money uh, to pay the salaries of some of the Western aid and development workers who are going to be part of the process of of dispersing it? Well, you know, as as you and John were saying uh, earlier, uh, I, I mean, it, it, it seems to be, you know, it seems to be yet another, you know, another a case of money filtering through the the NGO defense complex, mm-hmm. and uh, and I'm I'm in, I share your skepticism. I think that uh, that you know that the the NGOs will siphon it off, uh, you know, into sa- into inflated salaries for foreign experts. Um, that uh, that the, the 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 ordinary person will feel little benefit uh, uh, from it. And that you know that the uh, that the the political conditions will re- remain essentially unchanged. Mm-hmm. I mean that country is a is a broken country after after four more than forty years of war sponsored by the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's a disaster, and uh, there's not going to be any quick turnaround. That was author and journalist Dan Lazar. We always love talking to you, Dan. We really appreciate you coming on the show. And if you're interested in the Supreme Court, the Constitution, and American democracy, Dan's got a book you can read about that. Uh, You can read The Velvet Coup, uh, The Constitution, the Supreme Court, and the Decline of American Democracy. You can read The Frozen Republic, How Constitution is Paralyzing Democracy. Uh, There's lots out there if you want more Dan Lazar. Dan, appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so much. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Fits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. There was some explosive testimony on Capitol Hill yesterday when Twitter whistleblower and former security chief Peter Zatko, known as Mudge, testified that Twitter is, quote, extremely vulnerable, unquote, to being infiltrated by foreign governments, and indeed it had accidentally hired at least one Chinese intelligence officer that Twitter was not afraid of U.S. regulators, but was afraid of foreign regulators, that Twitter collects personal information on its users, including phone numbers, locations, emails, and IP addresses, that Twitter executives aren't even sure why this data is collected or what it's used for, and that Twitter employees could take over the account of literally any user and tweet from it. We're joined by technologist Chris Garafa. Chris is also co-host of Covert Action Magazine's Covert Action Bulletin podcast. Welcome back, Chris. Oh, great to be back again. Thank you so much. Chris, I've been thinking about you ever since this guy sat down to begin his testimony. (laughs) (laughs) This was some of the most important congressional testimony that I've heard in a very long time. Peter Zatko, Twitter's former security chief, talked about some real spy stuff taking place at Twitter. It dovetailed with what we're hearing about TikTok 
and how the Chinese government is using it to collect data on Americans. Do you think we should be wary of Twitter? Should we not use Twitter in order to protect our data? I think we should be aware of Twitter and what it's doing and what it's collecting on us, just like with any other social network or any other website, even the news websites you go to, the apps you use on your phone. I mean, thinking about this, you know, we know Facebook, we know Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, all of them are tracking so much data. It just happens to be Twitter that's in the hot seat this week mm-hmm. rather than Facebook uh, or another one. And I was actually a little disappointed by the testimony yesterday. I was, you know, disappointed but not surprised at the way the questioning went. I think it was all or almost all focused, and I watched all but about half an hour of it. Uh, it was almost all focused on, you know, national security yes. threats. But really, there's a massive threat to the privacy of people in the U.S. from Twitter itself and from the U.S. government that, of course, the U.S. government is not going to take on, right? It's not going to, uh, certainly Lindsey Graham is not going to, you know, rail against the U.S. spy machine. So when we use Twitter, just like when we use Facebook and, like I said, any other social network or website or app, we need to be aware. I think there's a lot of value in social media, in doing things like, you know, promoting news that you're not going to see on any other platform, which people do all the time. Certainly with Covert Action Bulletin, we rely on social media, uh, just, you know, just like many other independent media sources do. So I wouldn't say dump your Twitter account. Uh, I think there's a lot of value still to be had. Uh, but on the question, I mean, uh, the you know, the, the Chinese government using to collect data on Americans, I, I think that certainly the path that they laid out yesterday of a the fact that half Twitter employees are classified as engineers mm-hmm. and then engineers have access to the full Twitter system uh, that is certainly something that is concerning, right? And I can see how that connection is being made. But what that obscures is the fact that all of those other Twitter engineers who may be Americans, may not be, mm-hmm. it doesn't really matter, also have access to all of that information. Uh, and Twitter didn't put the money in or the resources into developing any kind of, of rules or uh, processes around that. Yeah, he was very dramatic when he he said that Twitter engineers could take over the Twitter account of any one of the senators in this room today and could tweet as those senators. And they all harumphed and looked at – yes, yes, they oh, were just hi. speechless. They all harumphed and looked at each other. Uh, so it was – Half of them don't was, know how to tweet anyway. Uh, yeah, exactly right. They have some 22-year-old intern that's doing the social media uh, for them. Zacco said, Chris, that there are a number of reasons why foreign governments would want to put spies on Twitter's payroll, including to see whether Twitter has identified a country's agents or information operations and what other government agents uh, Twitter has identified. That's very heavy stuff. Uh, one thing that Zacco didn't say was that Twitter is working with the CIA or with the FBI on these issues. What do you think we should take from that part of his testimony? I don't think Zacco would mention, frankly, that, uh, you know, if the CIA were working with Twitter, which we know that the, you know, I don't want to say the CIA specifically, but we know that Twitter has worked with 
U.S. government agencies sure. in the past and continues to. Um, you know, I can't claim you know any knowledge about current activity, but Twitter was one of the partners, for example, with the NSA on Prism. Zatko comes though from the you know from some history uh, after I think he was you know famous uh, as a part of a you know a hacking collective loft in the 90s mm-hmm. um you know he worked for the department of defense and in various capacities i think certainly even though he's a whistleblower and we celebrate that there are limitations to the whistles he is going to be mm-hmm. blowing mm-hmm. Uh, and the information he's going to be putting out there i think what he's coming at here is from a very specific perspective. I think it was highlighted in the documents that he released, but it was certainly on stage yesterday during that, during his testimony where he he could have answered the questions any way that he wanted, but he made a very specific choice to, to answer them in the ways that he did. Having said that, I still celebrate, of course, everything that Mudge brought out and has discussed and has shown. Uh, but I think we should, you know, even when we celebrate a whistleblower, understand where they're coming from yes, and what perspectives they're still bringing in. Um, so I think, yeah, Zacco wouldn't be saying, oh, the C- you know, the CIA has access to our database or the NSA gets this or that. Uh, but they have to be extremely aware of that. And there's practically no way that as the head of security, uh, he wouldn't have known about right. any of those programs, which he frankly, he may be, you know, under NDA or, you know, some sort of other uh, agreement to not speak about. Uh, and that wasn't the primary concern either of his testimony. And now I wish we would know about that. I wish somebody would blow the whistle about the current goings on of government uh cooperations with, yeah. you know, with all of these social networks. Certainly. Totally agree. Zatko said that Twitter collects every single user's phone number, IP address, email address, location, type of device the user has, browser and language. He also said that the company never deletes old information, even when accounts are no longer active. Why is that? What would they do with all that data? Well, why is it, I think, is the the very interesting question here is because they would have they would have had to write software. They would have had to write processes uh, in order to delete that information, to test those processes, to make sure that they work and all of that. And they didn't Mm. put the effort in because doing so wasn't profitable or valuable to them. So what they can do with all that information is target you for ads. They can hand it over to somebody else, whether it be advertisers or the government. They can do whatever it is they want with it. Um, But the not deleting old information, I think, you know, even if you delete your account, uh, or we've come to understand, they don't actually delete your information. It's still in that system somewhere, which should remind us of really the permanence of everything that we put online. You know, whether it's somebody taking a screenshot of a dumb thing that you posted on Twitter or Twitter itself, keeping a log of every device you've ever used Mm -hmm. to access the app, it's all going to be there and you have no way of ensuring that it's not there. So they could do a whole lot of things with that data. I think he actually gave a very good example. He was asked to give, I forget which senator it was, but you know, the 30 second rundown of what information they would have. And he did so. He he did that. And I think it was a very good example, uh, you know, where he explained all of these things. But really, it comes down to Twitter not valuing the you're not putting a value on having a way to delete all of this information. And we've learned also through Mudge that Twitter wouldn't even know where 
where all this information is. No. That there isn't, you know, one or two engineers, even at a very high level, who could tell you all of this information is in, you know, these 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 three systems. Right. And they're tied together with this way. And you should, you know, here's how we would delete them if somebody approves the project time to go write that. They don't even have that. Seemed very sloppy to me. One of the most important things that that in my view that he said yesterday in his testimony was that the FBI informed Twitter that it had inadvertently hired at least two Chinese intelligence officers who presumably spied on Americans through the data that the company collected. He said that Twitter executives didn't care and they did nothing to rout out these spies. What in the world should we take from that? Is that just intellectual laziness? This was so confusing to me, how how this line of questioning went and the way the answers uh, came out. Because you'd think that if there were Chinese intelligence officers who were working for Twitter and anywhere you know on U.S. soil, they would have been arrested, sure. they would have been put on trial, think that would have happened, right? None of that has happened. Correct. So what about these what about these allegations? Did the FBI actually have proof that these individuals were uh, working for the MSS or, you know, another agency? Is that something that the FBI actually had? Was it just part of the anti-Chinese witch hunt mm-hmm. that we have seen at universities and research centers and tech companies, you know, for years now? I, I I think a lot of this testimony yesterday from both Mudge and the senators was used to hype up this fear that we're supposed to have about China specifically. Um, You know, it's switched very quickly from Russia to China as the primary number one enemy. So I want to look at that claim uh, on both sides with a very, very careful lens mm, and really indeed. consider what it would mean uh, you know, if the FBI knew that there were Chinese spies working at Twitter and they could actually identify them. Yeah. Uh, yesterday, senators who participated in this hearing, Chris, uh, made some very strong statements and they were bipartisan. Senator Chuck Grassley said that Twitter's CEO should resign immediately. And Senator Dick Durbin said that Twitter's carelessness could be a matter of life and death for foreign dissidents. Even Tom Cotton, who I have zero respect for, made some very respectable comments about Twitter having to clean up its act. Do you think that's going to actually result in anything? Do you think that there is going to be a shakeup at Twitter or Twitter's going to change its internal policies or anything good is going to come of these revelations? No, I, I think Twitter has already doubled down. It, Twitter was invited, by the way, to uh, have a representative at the hearing uh-huh. yesterday, and they they refused. And that, I think, went really under the radar in, in the discussion. I didn't Twitter know that. Twitter was invited to have somebody there, whether it was Parag Agwal or some another representative, mm-hmm. uh, and they, they neglected it. They didn't do that. Uh, very interesting, by the way, that Mudge was subpoenaed, although it was, I guess, quote, a friendly subpoena. Um, you know, he was going to comply with it, but Twitter was not. Uh, that was really interesting to me that they didn't force or compel testimony from Twitter. But yeah, Twitter could have been there and they could have said, here's why this is wrong. Here's what's wrong with this, you know, this element of Mudge's story. Here's what's wrong with that. But they did nothing. They did absolutely nothing um, along those lines. I think that uh, Twitter, remember, is still in this legal battle now with Elon Musk ah. over this forty-four billion dollar, yes. uh, per, you know, purchase, which I, their shareholders approved going forward. I was just going to ask you about that, which was 
very interesting to have that timing. I mean, of course, the, the scheduling of that ahead of time was certainly coincidental, but very, uh, very interesting to me to see that timing happening that way. Uh, I mean, the, the whole Elon Musk Twitter thing is a whole other story. We could do a whole other segment on that. And I'm sure at some point we will again. But, you know, Twitter is really doubling down. They are getting hit from multiple sides. Yeah. They are really you know, under a lot of pressure, but I do not see the current leadership uh, making any kind of changes. I think they're going to deny, 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 and continue to go the way that they have been going. You know, yesterday, Elon Musk was kind of a jerk about it. When uh, when the hearing first began, he tweeted uh, just an emoji of a bag of popcorn and um, and has made several statements about not buying Twitter. He's just not going to do it. He's not going to buy Twitter. In fact, he's contractually obligated to buy Twitter. And now that the shareholders have approved his offer of whatever it was, $44 billion or whatever, uh, he's going to have to fish or cut bait. My own thought. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know you're right. He's going to, I mean, legally Twitter can take him to court. This might not be settled for many, many years. That's right. But what's a judge going to do? Say hand over $44 billion, like right. pull out your checkbook. I mean, that's not how that world works, right. right? This is not small claims court where you're trying to get your you know deposit back from your landlord. <laughs> this is uh, a world of money that, you know, most of us, the vast majority of us cannot imagine. imagine. So I think there's going to be years of legal battles around this. Uh, of course, Elon Musk wants to be provocative. He tweeted the popcorn. I think he should have gone with the Michael Jackson popcorn <laughs> gif myself, but that's my personal, <laughs> right. you know, personal opinion. Um, but of course, you know, he is an underwhelming man. So after learning recently, Chris, about the dangers of, of TikTok, something that I've been reading a lot about, uh, lately yesterday's, uh, testimony about Twitter and what we learned previously about, Cambridge Analytica and Facebook, uh, it makes me think that there is almost no upside to being on social media. You know, I, I originally went only on Facebook because my kids were on Facebook and I just wanted to make sure that, you know, they were youngish at the time. I didn't want them to do something they shouldn't be doing. So I went on Facebook. Same, same reason I finally opened a Twitter account just to see what my kids were doing. Um, now it's making me think that there's no upside to uh, to social media. What are your thoughts? Is it even really possible to protect ourselves on social media? I think if there were no upsides, then we wouldn't even be having this conversation. Um, a revelation like what Mudge has brought out mm -hmm. would not be the subject of Senate hearings. I, I really, I really right. believe that. I think social media is certainly here to stay. Um, in one form or another, you know, it doesn't matter which company is, is leading the way, but the idea of sharing information, sharing content, news, all of that in such a quick way where really anyone can be a producer, a creator, you know, just by typing or taking a picture is still very new, but we can see the effect that it has had. Uh, in you know positive and negative ways, but we wouldn't be engaging in it if there weren't some kind of you know human benefit that we got from it, right? The ability to communicate, the ability to have these discussions online, as sometimes awful as they are. So I, I think that the question should be: How do we get a system where we are protected in using social media, where this these tools that we have come to rely on are actually meant to facilitate 
things that are good for us and between us rather than facilitate profit and the national security state? And that's, I think, the question that we really should be asking. And is it possible with private companies running these things with absolutely no oversight or transparency? I think the answer is no, that is not sustainable. Totally agree. Chris, um, a letter bomb exploded on the campus of Northeastern University yesterday. A second bomb was diffused. Today, we learned that a letter associated with the explosive railed against Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook. Do you have any details at all? Are we looking at maybe another uh, Unabomber here? That was the first thing that came to mind when I saw this awful news uh, this morning um, that it happened. It was uh, around, I think, 9.30, 10 o'clock Eastern last night that this bomb had gone off and uh, injured somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, it feels like a Unabomber. It feels like that kind of situation Um, The letter has not been released. As far as we know, the versions of it floating around Twitter are entirely fake. Very interesting to note, though, that sites like 4chan are cheering on Uh this this event and possible copycats. And I think that's a very dangerous uh, thing that is not getting enough attention in the media. This, it's also very important to note that it happened in Boston, where, of course, yeah. Boston Children's Hospital has been the target of multiple bomb threats recently really? because they provide gender affirming care to children. So it's the so-called stochastic uh, terrorism that people wow. like uh, libs of TikTok and accounts like that have been encouraging. So I don't know that it's a I, I don't think it's a coincidence, uh, of course, you know, that this is also happening in uh, in Boston at Northeastern, I think there have been you know way too many uh, calls for violence, you know, directly or indirectly at institutions in Boston. Now, looking at the just the fact that a letter is allegedly supposed to have you know cited Mark Zuckerberg and concerns about uh, artificial intelligence. Going back to that, I mean, there are many, many conspiracy theories in in the the bad way, right? Yeah. Um, you know this this you know uh, that. AI and the metaverse are going to take over our lives and make us subservient to the machines. I mean, that's nothing new, certainly. I mean, the Unabomber had various versions of that theory himself. So did some others. Um, I think the radicalization uh, of forces like this uh, and the actions that we're seeing in some ways, you know, condoned indirectly or directly from personalities on social media uh, and in the media mm-hmm. need to be addressed. And that's really the, the concern that we should be taking away from this story, uh, of course, as well as the safety of, of all the people involved here. Indeed. We are going to leave it there. That was the voice of Chris Garafa. Chris is co-host of Covert Action Magazine's Covert Action Bulletin podcast. You're listening to Political Misfits right here on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll be back with our second hour. on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatments. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. 
The Washington Post reported today that since 2014, Russia has funneled some $300 million to influence candidates and political parties around the world and to promote their alignment with Kremlin interests, particularly in Europe and Africa. The Biden administration commissioned the study of Russian activities from the CIA and then declassified some of the report's findings. But what the administration hasn't talked about is the billions of dollars that the U.S. government has spent to influence candidates, political parties and elections around the world, beginning with the 1948 Italian elections and running through some 86 different countries over the next 74 years. The Republican Party seems to be in the midst of a transformation, one that is pitting MAGA Trump Republicans against traditional civil libertarians against neoconservatives. A microcosm of this is in the state of New Hampshire, which had the year's final primary election yesterday. In the race for the Republican nomination for both congressional seats and a U.S. Senate seat, MAGA Republicans defeated mainstream Republicans endorsed by Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell. The conventional wisdom is that it's easier for Democrats to beat Trump allies and election deniers. But what does it say about the long-term direction of the Republican Party? And French President Emmanuel Macron announced that the country would begin a national debate on euthanasia and end-of-life options. Canada and the Netherlands currently permit assisted suicide, but opponents worry that people will be coerced or bullied into ending their lives prematurely. We're joined by Daniel McAdams. He's executive director of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. Dan served as the Foreign Affairs, Civil Liberties, and Defense and Intelligence Policy Advisor to Congressman Ron Paul from 2001 until Dr. Paul's retirement at the end of 2012. Dan, it's always great to have you. Welcome back. Thanks so much. It's great to be back with you both. Dan, I was surprised to see the declassification of findings in this new CIA report on Russian attempts to influence elections, foreign policy and such in Europe and Africa. It was almost comical to me as a former CIA officer in light of what we know about CIA meddling in at least 86 countries since 1948, beginning with those Italian elections that year, stretching through Central and South America, Iran, Greece, and elsewhere. What are your thoughts on this report? Am I understanding things when I say that meddling is wrong, but, or I should say understating when I say that meddling is wrong, but, you know, it ought to be wrong for everybody? Well, my first reaction, of course, is that it's the whole study is a pack of lies. Um, From where it started, the CIA and the intelligence community in the deep state to how it was reported in the New York Times and the Washington Post. Mm -hmm. These are two publications that have the the entire Trump presidency continue to put forth the lie uh, that Trump was somehow compromised Mm -hmm. by his ties to Russia, that the election was fixed by Russia. So, I mean, these organizations have zero credibility. I don't even know what it means, 300 million to influence elections. We have, what, a a $40 billion budget for our intelligence community, uh, at least at least that much. Um, I, I, you know, John, I just think, look, we're eight weeks away from an election and they whip this crap out of their back pocket yeah. saying, oh, oh, meddling, 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 the Russians. So I think they're just preparing for the big change that may well happen in November. And they're going, aha, it was it was the Russians. Look, Putin won, Putin won. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I don't know how much this is going to work. But I certainly, my, my, my BS detector went into overdrive oh, when Dan, I saw the report. I, Dan, I think you have hit the nail right on the head. It's no accident that this report came out right now. This was completely pre-planned. 
I, I couldn't agree more. And another thing, too, to your point, uh, we talked about this very briefly at the start of the show. Uh, you know, the, the, the Durham investigation is over. The grand jury has expired and everybody's gone home. And there never was any Russian meddling in uh, the Trump campaign. There was never any collusion between the Russians and Trump. Never. And it's, it's you know, back of, of the A-section news. It's like nobody cares now that the truth yeah. is, is out. They, they've got what they wanted. They discredited uh, a president. They impeached him twice, all on mm-hmm. laws. And, you know, none of us here are, are wearing our Trump 2024 shirts, right? So we're not. It's I not forgot mine. I, tomorrow. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's just, if you want to talk about threats to, demo- to democracy, talk about projection. They're the biggest threats to democracy. They're the election deniers, right? Because they denied for four years uh, mm-hmm. President Trump's election. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, so, you know, it's projection. It is. One of the funny things. Uh, to me, is that Americans either don't know or aren't taught about the fallout from meddling in the internal affairs of other countries. Kermit Roosevelt, who was one of the sons of President Theodore Roosevelt and a very senior former CIA officer, was responsible for implementing the overthrow of the Iranian government in the 1950s. Near the end of his life, he told Bob Shear, a friend of mine and a and a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, journalist for the Los Angeles Times, that it was the gravest mistake he had ever made in his life being being uh, involved in the overthrow of the Iranian government, the democratically elected Iranian government. Our relations with Iran have never recovered from that. And we're talking about well over half a century later. It's one thing to accuse the Russians of meddling since 2014. But less what lessons should we take from U.S. meddling? in other countries' elections and internal affairs going back way, way before 2014. But it's okay if we do it because we're doing it for the good guys. We're the good guys. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know that about Kermit Roosevelt, and I'm actually heartened to hear that because he did a lot of pretty nasty things. Yeah, he was a bad uh, guy. At that time. He was a a pretty bad guy. It's nice to hear that at the end he kind of recanted some of the stuff. But you're right. I mean, these things have consequences. When you go around fooling around with other, with, with, you know, overthrowing governments. I mean, we're facing the, the fallout from that in Ukraine right now. Putin didn't wake up one morning on the 24th of February and say, you know what, it's kind of boring today. I think I'm going to go ahead and invade Ukraine. <laughs> you know, this is all the result of U.S. meddling, not only in 2014 in Maidan, but all through the, the early 2000s with the Orange Revolution. These were all U.S.-backed, U.S.-cooked-up schemes. And, you know, they're leading us to, to a third world war. So. If the Russians did spend that money, whatever, it didn't do very much good, did it? Right. You know, and I'd like to know how they're counting it. You know, are they counting, you know, what you guys are doing right now as part of that influence, you know, you know, or RT or RT America? Who knows how they count it? But it's not doing much good. On the other hand, we spend billions and billions, like you say, doing this. And you can see the damage that they do, not only to the recipients of our wonderful democracy promotion, but uh, to Americans themselves, to our mm-hmm. reputation overseas. Uh, you know, we're, we're viewed as hypocrites. Right. We are. I want to ask you about China, too. We see a lot of American admonitions about Chinese investment overseas and how this investment is a form of meddling. But is it is Chinese investment in infrastructure, for example, around the world 
not different from clandestinely financing political parties or financing social media uh, advertisements or campaigns to influence elections? You know, <laughs> like how is it how is it a bad thing that the Chinese go around the world building highways and and hospitals and airports and stuff? It's much better that we go around bombing things, you know, <laughs> right? I mean, it, this is the one thing that really irritates me, especially with a lot, and when maybe we'll talk politics later, but a lot of Republicans who are pretty decent, especially some of the younger ones that are coming up, pretty decent on Russia, Ukraine. There are a few that have been running for office. But then they said, well, we shouldn't be involved in that, but we got to face the real enemy, which is China. Right. Uh, you know, and it's such a dumb thing. Uh, it's so dangerous and stupid. But the Chinese go overseas and they do business. They're better capitalists than we are. Yeah. And I think that's what ticks people off. That's not fair. You guys are better at it than us. We're going to, you know, we're going to we're going to undermine you. We're going to call you bad guys. You know, if, if we would spend half the energy and money, you know, looking to 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 build things uh, overseas, uh, to encourage Americans to invest overseas, what have you, that we do trying to undermine, we'd be a lot richer and we have a lot fewer enemies. Exactly right. I wanted to talk to you about what seems to me to be a fight for the soul of the Republican Party. Donald Trump truly has turned the party into a populist movement. On the one hand, he's been successful at getting Republicans to question foreign entanglements, which I think is a great thing. On the other hand, there's now a place in the Republican Party for QAnon adherents and election deniers, and the party's rank and file now seems hostile to the old school neoconservatives who led the Republicans for so many years. First, give us your thoughts on the direction of the Republican Party. Where where is it headed? Well, I mean, if the party of as as you say of the current leadership, McConnell. Uh, and McCarthy, if that's going by the wayside, then I'm going to be the first one, yeah. you know, to to clap over the grave. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm the with party. you. Uh-huh. But, and there are some weirdos that, you know, are involved. You mentioned the QAnon and all that. But, you know, you, you always get that kind of fringy thing, especially when you do hit a populist chord. You know, <laughs> Dr. Paul attracted, I know this might shock you, some unusual people as supporters <laughs> as well when he ran. And you have people like that that are desperate for for a, for a political home. It is kind of weird to think you're right. You know, he has formed a populist movement. Here's a, a moderate Republican, the furthest thing from, from a populist uh, in, his, in his whole political career, really, that sparks this populist revolution. Uh, I think he just has his finger on the pulse uh, very well. But the future of the party I, I do think there are young people that are coming up. We've seen some in Arizona. And I confess, I don't know the details of all their positions. Uh, but we had a fellow on. He, I think he lost his primary from Florida who who earned the ire of uh, of one neoconservative by saying we shouldn't be giving any money to Ukraine. Wow. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So so you're seeing some people like that. And I think that's good. But again, as I prefaced before, you still have that hawkishness. Oh yeah, it's China, not not Ukraine, not Russia. That's a danger, uh, you know. But if the neocons are gone, if McCarthy and McConnell are gone by the wayside, then I'm going to stand up and cheer because these are pretty bad people. Just yeah. like the, the leaders of the Democratic Party are pretty bad people. They've driven away all the good progressives. Yeah. They've turned them into warmongers and deep state lovers. We we we've got a mess, guys. We really do. Well, Michelle pointed out just a few minutes ago that. It's a lot of the Democrats, for example, that are coming down against the side of organized labor uh, in this in this latest, um, you know, strike threat. 
from uh I mean I don't know specifically what you know they they would do to have you know are they going to pass legislation to avert a strike that's going right. to force the railway companies to comply with the demands of the unions you know maybe but this the Democratic Party has a history now in the past decade yes. of of you know sending its highest officials to go to lobbying firms that do union busting yes. and accepting union busters into its ranks. So it's you know certainly not a reliable party of labor right now. Yes. And I would you know I would be a little worried about what it, what even a Democratic Congress is going to do in the in the face of a serious labor dispute. And it's the Democrats who have been the tip of the spear on this virtually unlimited aid to Ukraine. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no yeah. cap on this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It, it's the Democrats that are pushing this. War. Yeah, it's, it's it's astonishing to see the union issue, because, I mean, I think that's one area where Trump was successful. He tapped into, uh, you know, the old Nixon strategy of tapping into blue collar yeah. uh, w- workers. Yes. And, you know, I mean, my grandfather was a dyed in the wool Democrat. Because the Democrats are for the working man. My dad was a Democrat because he was a teamster. Um, and, you know, the Democrats are, 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 are friends of union. But you, you're right. You don't see that anymore. Um, not that you necessarily see the Republican Party embracing blue collar no. workers no. and unions. But there certainly, certainly is a void that could be filled uh, in that direction. Totally agree. You know, both my grandfathers were members of the United Steelworkers Union. My dad was a member of the Amalgamated uh, Butchers and Meat Cutters Union and a life member of the American Brotherhood of Musicians. My mom was a member of the American Federation of Teachers. I was a member of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. We're we're three generations of of, you know, labor union members. And uh, I feel no affinity uh, from a labor perspective perspective uh, with the Democratic Party. No, none. Those days are long gone. I want to ask you also, uh, Dan, about uh, civil libertarians in the Republican Party. It seems that there are fewer and fewer true civil libertarians. Uh, We can point to Rand Paul, Mike Lee, Thomas Massey, but I'm hard pressed to think of others, you know, and it seems to me that back in the 70s and even the 80s, there were lots and lots of Republicans who who had our civil civil liberties at heart and really ran on the protection of, of civil liberties. That doesn't seem to be the case anymore. And frankly, among Democrats, I can't name any. I mean, maybe yeah. maybe Bernie Sanders on the right issues. I don't know. Uh, what does this mean first for individual freedoms in the coming years? And over the longer term, what does it mean for the Republican Party? You know, it's, it's really frustrating, guys, because, I mean, I feel like we're not doing a good enough job because we don't seem to have as many allies. And you're right. The Democratic Party is gone. There's no, I mean, the, the, Tulsi Gabbard and, and, yeah, and Tulsi Dennis Gabbard are gone. Right. The, you know, it, it's it's just completely gone. And, you know, and I think my, my good friend Jeff Dice, who work, we used to work together for Ron Paul, he now runs the Mises Institute. I think he points out the idea that politics is now so all-encompassing and the idea of gaining and attaining power. You know, I mean, I think the Republicans, they want to win, um, not so that they can, you know, basically uh, gut the FBI, which needs to happen, but because they want to control it. We want to control the levers of power. I mean, we have a a Homeland Security chief who said that Americans who don't trust their government are the biggest terrorist threat beyond even foreign-sponsored terrorists. We have, you know, a government that literally is at war 
with at least half the population and nobody standing up on the principles of um, of civil liberties. And I I'm frustrated because we should be doing better um, at appealing to people. And I I just wish there was a magic bullet, so to speak, that we had. I want to sort of echo that point. I think it's a really good point to make because I have seen um, some some people on the left uh, expressing appreciation for figures like Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, and figures on the right who, you know, uh, call for, uh, you know, momentarily call for defunding the FBI or gutting the FBI or gutting the security state. And I just don't understand why anyone trusts that 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 is what would happen. Right. I think it is exactly as you say, they just want control of it and to, you know, to use it to their own ends. And I'm, I'm really sort of perplexed as to why anyone would trust these calls that are sort of, you know, put forth in the heat of the moment, obviously don't have any kind of a philosophical or ideological backing to them and go, yeah, okay, let's, uh, you know, we can work together. Yeah. It reminds me of a meme and I'm going to mess it up because I'm like borderline boomer, but <laughs> you know, it's the Lord of the Rings meme, you know, where they, you know, once you get, once you get the ring, you throw it into the fire. And then Republicans are holding it and they want to wait. You know, libertarians tell the Republicans to throw it in the fire and then they look up and they've got the ring, you know, and that's what they want, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, France is, I'm going to change the subject. France is becoming, uh, sorry, beginning a national debate on assisted suicide. Um, assisted suicide is already allowed with some regulations in Canada and it's allowed in the Netherlands. I think the Dutch were the first. Uh, to implement it. How can a nation balance a person's right to end their life on their own terms while at the same time protecting them against coercion and undue outside influence? It's a scary prospect, you know, especially when you when you start thinking about the more government control you have over medicine. Yeah. Uh, and we, we witnessed this the two years of COVID, how anyone who challenged, and it turns out that most of them were right, People like Rand Paul and others who said, well, hang on a minute. We have this thing called natural immunity. I mean, when you have this, you know, really the the big pharma medical complex is as powerful as the military industrial complex. And they don't have our best interests at heart. You know, Dr. Paul, as you know, was a practicing physician for for decades. Many years. Yes. I mean, he bemoans regularly on our program the end of the doctor-patient relationship. So I think until we can find a way to restore that. And I don't know what the answer is, but until we can restore that, this slide down the path toward euthanasia is pretty frightening. You know, older folks, they cost a lot of money. You know, they they get sick and it would save a lot of money to just kill them. And I wonder about some of these, the rest home people during COVID, if there wasn't some of that going on, at least subconsciously. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I share your concerns over this. And I know that in Canada, too, um, there was a controversy recently, uh, six, eight, ten months ago. Um, it was a woman who wanted to uh, to commit suicide through the use of assisted suicide only because um, – what was it? She was. We had a discussion. She, yeah, we talked, we talked about, about this on this. the show. I think yeah. also it was Switzerland, right? Who was the first to do? To oh, Switzerland was the first. Even, I think My mistake. so. Um, but this, yeah, I mean, I think that adults who are facing terminal illnesses, uh, you know, I don't, I don't really see a terrible problem with with allowing euthanasia under those circumstances. Sure. But what people are warning is happening in Canada is that 
some of the barriers are being eliminated. So, and some of the reasons for seeking assisted suicide can be things like uh, mental, you know, the, the age limits are coming down. And she uh, couldn't you afford her it. apartment. Wasn't well, that it what was it was? Well, it was a woman who had like, uh, I forget what it's called, but it's like multiple chemical sensitivity. That's right. And basically Ooh. the um, the disability support that she got from the state was not such that she could actually afford to live in a place that wouldn't trigger this illness that she found intolerable. So it's not as though there was no, and and her case was like others, it's not as though there is no possibility of these people with disabilities living lives that are are comfortable and fulfilling. It's that they can't do that on the money that they are given uh, to to live. And so that's a concern, right? That people will start saying, well, sorry, uh, yeah, it's just really expensive. What are you going to do? You're never going to be able to afford it. Here's this other option. And that's what our, our guest was saying. This really, this is beginning to sound extremely coercive. The solution isn't assisted suicide. The solution is, you know, finding a way to support people with disabilities so they don't that's have to right. live in, in uh, squalor and indignity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is maybe an area where charities and churches uh, can, can come back. They've all but disappeared, I think. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I you know, I've, I have personal views about suicide, obviously, but you're right. I mean, people do face a lot of terrible challenges and uh, they should get the support that they need. Switching uh, gears again, the New York Times reported today that the Durham inquiry is wrapping up. The grand jury's uh, term has expired. So that's the end of it. This was the investigation into Donald Trump's alleged ties to Russia. Durham found that there were no ties. And indeed, the only crimes that he found were these two individuals that I mentioned a few minutes ago who had lied to the FBI. So my question to you is, was this just a colossal waste of time or was it more onerous than that? Did it show that that two people telling lies to the FBI and then leaking information to the media could tie the U.S. government up in knots for years? I mean, I'm I'm feeling more and more like this was a covert operation of the deep state from the beginning. You know, we see the the revelations that the uh, the the one witness was not only did he did he take was he involved in writing the phony steel dossier, but he ended up on the FBI's payroll, right? Uh, as a, as a confidential informant. And actually, I, I read a piece from from someone's post about it, and they made the very good point that when they made him a paid informant, it actually protected them from further scrutiny over what they had been doing because now they couldn't talk about it because they had to protect their sources and methods. So it was a clever way of them for them to cover their rear ends by making him a paid informant. So, I mean, I think at the end of the day, if the smoke ever does clear, it's going to look like the deep state's war against Donald Trump more than more than anything else. Yeah, I, I could see that, that Donald Trump is is actually the victim here. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Donald Trump is the victim in his own mind. Uh, yeah. But every this, day. This, yeah. this was, this was for real. No, I mean, yeah, it did. It did, uh, it, it, you know, put some obstacles in front of his administration. Certainly it slowed things down. Certainly the, uh, the leaks that came out of his administration, you know, were, were troublesome and difficult to deal with. Yeah. I mean, okay, well, we'll leave it there. Uh, thanks, Dan Adams for uh, Dan McAdams for joining us. Uh, Daniel is the executive director of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. He served as the Foreign Affairs, Civil Liberties, and Defense and Intelligence Policy Advisor to Congressman Ron Paul, MD, from 2001 until Dr. Paul's retirement 
at the end of 2012. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a short break and come right back. on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we are in a few minutes going to get into this report uh, by the UN on the state of modern slavery and how it's not trending in the direction we would like it. You know, it's amazing that we even have to use those words, modern slavery. Yeah. Crazy. Forced labor everywhere. Yep. Uh, they they also talk about forced marriages, and you know this is a anytime you talk about forced labor and 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 human trafficking or slavery and human trafficking, you know like sexual slavery gets so much attention, yeah, um, and and sex trafficking gets so much attention, but the vast majority of this stuff is for is labor, is is of workers, right? Yeah. And so, and it's just not as sexy and you don't have damsels in distress yes. most of the time. You know, I read something fascinating the other day. Believe it or not, in the United States, there are more Chinese restaurants than there are McDonald's, Wendy's, and Burger King's combined. Uh-huh. And what happens is uh, a majority of the kitchen workers in these Chinese restaurants are um, shipped to the United States usually in containers on ships. What? Uh-huh. And there's an underground network of transportation to farm them out to Chinese restaurants all around the country. It's a form of slavery. Wow. Uh-huh. And then just so they don't get to figure out exactly where they are and what's going on uh, and to keep them always guessing, they constantly transfer them. So you're only at a restaurant for six months or so. And then the, the handler shows up and sends you to some other state and you're kept as a slave in that restaurant. I think it would have to be organized by some sort of central body. Yeah, most like Chinese restaurants in the United Chinese States are mafia. not operated by Chinese people, though, I don't think. Oh, yeah, they are. So every place I know is operated by, like, Koreans. <laughs> you know? No, I mean, really, it's like, because it's the food that people know. It's, that's very sad. Yeah, hey, can awful. I give you a little, we've been talking a little bit about Iran, the relationship with Iran and all year, or all for the past God, couple months now, yeah. we've been waiting to see if there's going to be a new nuclear deal. And of course, periodically, we continue to get messages like the one we got today that the U.S. is sanctioning 12 more yeah. individuals and entities associated with the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. I mean, this never seems to actually impact the negotiations, you know, at least according to the guests we speak to. So maybe it's meaningless, but... It's sort of it's it's not the kind of message I would like to be getting on our relationship totally with Iran, right? I'd rather be hearing about a new You'd think that it would be in our national interest to be magnanimous at this point and uh just not do yeah, it. Yeah, or just stop antagonizing. Uh but right. but no. Uh you know, I have a well, you know what? I'm going to wait on this tidbit I was about to tell you cuz I know we have our guest and I have been wanting to get into this for a long time. So of course, uh the UN this week released a grim report on modern slavery that found that forced labor and forced marriage have increased over the last five years. Uh, it says compared with 2016 global estimates, 
10 million more people were in modern slavery in 2021, with women and children disproportionately vulnerable. The report also noted that more than half of all forced labor and a quarter of all forced marriages can be found in upper middle income or high income countries. And now if you go and look at a map, about half the world seems to be high income or uh, upper middle income countries. I didn't count countries and I couldn't find a, a breakdown that would tell me, but just looking, it looks about equal. So it shouldn't be surprising, I guess, that they are proportionally, proportionally represented in these findings. But there is a tendency to view things like forced labor and forced marriage as the practices of, of poor and, and, quote, you know, backward places. Mm -hmm. And at least with forced labor, that is obviously not the case. And so joining us to talk about what this report found and what it should tell us about our world is Terry Collingsworth. He's executive director of International Rights Advocates. He's a labor and human rights attorney specializing in trade and international labor rights issues. Terry, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Great to be back on the show. And this is the issue that is probably the most near to my heart is dealing with the forced labor and child still going on in the global economy today. Yeah, I'm really glad you can join us. You were who I wanted to talk to about this. And so just to start generally, you know, what what do these results say to you about our world? And were you surprised that uh, forced labor has increased in the past five years? I was not at all surprised. And I have been particularly following what's happening in the cocoa sector in Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana where children, child slaves, are harvesting cocoa for Nestle, Mars, Hershey, and all the, the big companies. And those numbers went up significantly, too. So I expected that the numbers were going to go up globally. And it's simply because no one in power in, in the global economy, meaning governments, international organizations like the UN and the ILO, and most of all, multinational corporations, none of those entities that have the power are doing anything meaningful other than issuing reports, creating for themselves guidelines and, and goals that they're never going to achieve because they're not doing anything to achieve. The one thing that, that the companies are doing and I think it's complicit with the governments and the ILO is that they are putting out policies that claim that they're against child labor and they prohibit it in their supply chains, and then everyone accepts that as if it means something and move on and think that the problem is now going to be solved. Yeah, I want to get into exactly what you have outlined in more detail. And you, you started by saying, you know, you, you are particularly uh, connected to labor abuses on cocoa plantations. Can you elaborate a little bit on what what modern slavery looks like? Uh, because I think that, you know, forced labor might not be something that people would would easily recognize. Well, funny enough, uh, most of my friends and I, we, we abhor the term modern slavery because in our eyes, it's just good old slavery. Right. It, it's like trying to put lipstick on a pig. Modern slavery, is that less bad? Not if you're the slave. It's pretty much the same thing, that you don't have any choice in how you work. But let me just quickly run through sort of what the forced labor parameters are, because a lot of the, the indicators are rather subtle. Um, the ILO does put out good reports and good indicators, and they actually have 10 
specific indicators to look for if you're trying to identify forced labor. And just quickly to run through them, but abuse on the job. That means you're subject to someone else's whims. Deception in getting the job, restriction of movement, isolation, physical or sexual violence, intimidation and threats, retention of identity documents, withholding of wages, debt bondage, abusive working conditions, and excessive overtime. Those are the indicia that if you don't need them all, but if any of those are really going on, you probably have some situation where the employee is not consenting or the worker is not consenting to the way that they are being treated and the way they are uh, uh, in relation to the employer. I have a case that we just filed against Kimberly Clark Corporation and Ansel Limited. They're both uh, health product companies. They were involved in a forced labor scheme in Malaysia uh, involving the manufacture of latex gloves. Uh, it had been going on for quite a while, but essentially these, these the companies that were making the gloves advertised in Bangladesh for a great job making gloves in Malaysia. The uh, workers signed up, they had to pay a recruitment fee, and then when they got to Malaysia, they were told that they can't leave, they took their documents, and then they made them work off the recruitment fee, and then they charged in some exorbitant amounts for food and lodging, so they were always in debt and having to work the debt off. That's pretty classic so-called modern slavery situation. I also want to ask, you know, the International Labor Organization, which is one of the entities that published this report, uh, its president said, it is shocking that the situation of modern slavery isn't improving, which I thought, you know, I don't know. I don't know if it's shocking. And, and so I wanted to talk about what actually facilitates uh, forced labor, right? Because uh, the report recommends, you know, effective national policies and regulations, and it calls on trade unions and employers organizations and civil society and ordinary people to to do their part. And what this seems to ignore to me, and again, I didn't read the entire long report, so maybe there's maybe it's it's in there. But what seems to be ignored is, is the way international trade and international trade policies and regulations facilitate this kind of forced labor. Like, I don't know that the market for those latex gloves was entirely in uh, Malaysia, just like the market for the cocoa and the finished chocolate products that are made by these uh, child slaves in Mali is in the United States. It's not in Mali. And so I wonder if, you know, we are ignoring um, the sort of international forces that allow this to continue and, and acting as though it's a it's a national problem in the countries where forced labor is occurring. You are absolutely right. That is, it's don't worry, it's not in the report because they're afraid to acknowledge the reality that the global economy, the way that it is now set up, it was designed to protect property rights and investment. So if, but there's nothing, there's no mechanism whatsoever for a child slave to go to some international body to get relief uh, if they were enslaved. So if, for example, if, if you infringe Apple's copyright or one of their patents, they have 
all kinds of options for coming after you. They can use national legal systems in their own countries, uh, but they also could go to the WTO, the World Trade Organization, which has mechanisms set up, and there are a number of regional treaties that are protecting Apple's property rights. But when I found that Apple was benefiting from a supply chain in the DRC where child slaves were mining cobalt that is an essential ingredient for their phones and also for Tesla's batteries, uh, there was no international mechanism I could go to. I tried to sue them here in the U.S., and they're screaming, that's not fair. Why are you suing us here? So that it is structural. It is absolutely structural, and it's because the people that are going to be victims of forced labor, they had no power whatsoever. They didn't have a seat at the table when these rules were drawn up. And frankly, trade unions, including our own, they're, they're correctly looking out for their own members, but they're not representing this constituency of children who might be subjected to forced labor or slavery. So there's just so you would think that would be the governments of the world coming together to do something to help them. So what did they do? The UN, the United Nations. Uh, enacted a global compact. Sounds great. It has all these rights. You can't have forced labor, but there's no enforcement mechanism. It just simply says, don't do it. So that's why we have an increase in forced labor and child slavery, because there is no mechanism, even on the drawing boards, that is going to stop it. Yeah, I mean, it seems to be a pretty obvious oversight, right? I haven't spent my entire career studying global trade and labor, but it seems this seems pretty clear. And I also wonder if you can remind us of uh, what happens when you do attempt to go through national judicial channels to address some of this stuff. I mean, you you represented this group of Malian uh, child laborers who attempted to get some kind of uh, compensation from the huge multinational companies that have had uh, benefited from their forced labor. You went to the Supreme Court to do it. And, you know, what what happens when you try to do that? Because it seems like mostly uh, these national judicial systems uh, get get out of weighing in on this problem or taking a stand on this by saying, oh, no, this isn't the appropriate channel. But then what is the appropriate channel? You're absolutely right. We we litigated against Nestle and Cargill for 16 years. Oh, my gosh. On behalf of six former child slaves. They were trafficked from Mali and then enslaved in Cote d'Ivoire. This wasn't modern slavery. This was slavery. And 16 years later, the the new conservative Supreme Court invented a new standard that said our human rights law, the alien tort statute, it doesn't apply extraterritorially. That was a brand new uh, hoop that is impossible to jump through. But that's the sort of thing that happens. Yes, they are protecting the global power structure within our judicial system by making it virtually impossible to sue these companies. We've done it again under a new law, the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, and we have a few more things up our sleeve, but it shouldn't be this hard to prevent and remedy child slavery, which really makes your point that the system simply is allergic to trying to help these kids. I also am curious how politicized some of these uh, conversations and um, responses to forced labor can be. 
the ILO president said, for example, that, uh, you know, in, in terms of trying to address this problem, that a ban on products made with forced labor uh, could be helpful. The European Union is, is considering such a ban. Um, but, you know, one of the things that the report highlights is people doing compulsory prison labor, which is a practice that uh, exists in the United States. And so, you know, you wonder how comprehensive some of these bans will be, especially when what we see in the United States are a lot of, um, you know, politically targeted types of bans like this, right? We focus very much on Xinjiang and what might be happening with the Uyghur population there. Uh, and so I wonder if in your experience, the, the kinds of regulations that get recommended and implemented tend to be uniformly applied and impartial, or if they're undercut by being, you know, mostly political and, and used to target particular nations and not particular practices. I, I'm aware that uh, the EU's uh, proposal on the forced labor ban uh, on products uh, was released today, and I have not studied it. But you're absolutely right that that is going to be the danger, and I can speak very concretely that the U.S. has had a law since 1930, Section 307 of the Tariff Act, which allows the U.S. to ban products made with forced labor. Uh, the problem with it is, is it is political in that the Commissioner of Customs and Border Protection, you submit a complaint to the commissioner, and then it goes into that black hole of bureaucracy. They never tell you where the investigation is. They never tell you if they do or do not take action unless they finally do take action. So we filed two years and six months ago a petition on cocoa, that we wanted to ban the importation of cocoa, and we submitted a tremendous amount of evidence showing that it's still going on, including the Department of Labor's own report. We haven't heard a peep from Customs and Border Protection in two years and six months. Six months ago, I organized a huge coalition of human rights and labor groups, including the AFL-CIO, signing off on a letter asking the new commissioner, what is up? Are you going to take action in this blatant case of child slavery? And we still have not heard. So we can only imagine that the forces of Cargill, Nestle, Mars, and Hershey have used their, their quiet power to slow down and or prevent this from actually happening. So the EU is likely to have a similar process where there's going to be a bureaucracy that receives complaints and then how they act on it is up to them. What we do need is a private right of action so that if the government does not act in a certain period of time, that we would have the right to then sue. That's the same mechanism that the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission has. If you file a discrimination complaint, they have 90 days to take action, and if they don't, you, have, you request the right to sue. So this is politicized, and it is a big deal to ban the import of a product, but it should always happen when you can prove child slavery is involved in harvesting cocoa, for example. Yeah, absolutely. It just seems to me like if you were going to, you know, sort of universally apply some of these standards, we'd be looking at bans of quite a lot of agricultural products and maybe quite a lot of the uh, fast fashion 
that is so ubiquitous here. I don't know, uh, you know, off the top of my head where what industries uh, forced labor is particularly well represented in. But, you know, I do think it is kind of a tell that so many of these proposed bans, not necessarily this EU one, but certainly ones coming out of the United States, uh, target target countries or regions rather than industries. That's correct. And in fact, in our Malaysia glove case, uh, the company that was making the gloves for Kimberly Clark and Ansel is called Brightway. It's a Malaysian company. Uh, somebody filed a petition there, and Customs and CBP did ban the importation of those gloves because it was a Malaysian company coming from Malaysia. They didn't have their their giant lobbying firms in Washington preventing that from happening. Whereas Nestle, Cargill, Mars, and Hershey, they've they've created some at least temporary immunity for their absolute criminal behavior. I, I wanted to ask before we let you go, Terry, if, if there is any good news on the fight against forced labor or, or forced marriage, which we haven't really talked about very much. Uh, you know, as you say, these uh, multinational bodies seem to be good at issuing reports and very little else. At least there is some attention being paid to it. Uh, is, is there anywhere we can look to a sort of international organization or maybe a country that is actually taking um, impactful steps to, to end this, you know, forced, forced labor and forced marriage? I'm afraid I can't give you that kind of good news because it, it, it just simply isn't happening. But there is some good news. I will say, you know, it's like any problem, including the civil rights movement, which remains a, a, a pretty shining example of the power of organizing people. Uh, we're fed up, but it's not just us. All over the world, uh, whether it's in the global south or in the e- European Union, groups that are working on human rights issues have really banded together recently and said, this has to be our priority. There's lots of problems going on, but we should all agree that ending forced labor and child slavery is a priority. So we're working in a coalition to really brainstorm about what other things we can be doing. And we have some really good ideas that I still have to keep on the cuff, but I think you're going to see some explosive new strategies from the global unity of groups that want to actually stop this horrific practice. I mean, that does sound like that. It's a start. Hey, Terry, this has just occurred to me. It's off the top of my head. So so forgive me. But I'm curious whether uh, you can say whether, um, you know, large free trade agreements like the proposed TPP, like other free trade agreements, have have a particular impact on 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 forced labor. Do they because the criticism, of course, is that they tend to give uh, the big corporations uh, that tend to promote them power over, you know, they, they sort of erode national sovereignty in favor of giving rights to these corporations who, of course, are are more profit driven than you would hope national governments could be. Is there is there any link, do you think, between things like uh, big free trade um, agreements and forced labor? Absolutely. That is the reason these agreements were made is to really open up the world to global capital as a playground to find the place where they can manufacture with the least amount of local regulation on labor and on environment. And and that caused this, this whole explosion. And as I said at the outset, these agreements, they tend to have very airtight protections of property and investments and virtually nothing, maybe a, a mention of the hope that we have global uh, 
uh, protection of rights, but there is no protection of rights for the people in those agreements. I think the North American Free Trade Agreement is probably the, the first and worst example of what these agreements do in, in that that agreement allowed Mexico to be the 51st state where you could manufacture anything and bring it on home duty-free. And when the unions tried to get labor and environmental protections built in, what they got was a side agreement that has uh, the, the substantive rights laid out, but there's no enforcement mechanism. What you get, I brought the very first uh, labor case under the uh, North American Free Trade Agreement on behalf of women who got pregnant were fired in Mexico because the, the costs would go up. We, quote, won that case, and our remedy was a ministerial <laughs> consultation the Mexican Minister of Labor had to meet with the U.S. Secretary of Labor and say, yep, we're going to try harder and, and improve. That was it. So that's, that's why we're in this situation, these global trade agreements that lack enforcement mechanisms for rights. Terry Collingsworth, so glad we could talk to you about this. You are the Executive Director of International Rights Advocates. You are a labor and human rights attorney. Where should our listeners go to find more about the work that you're doing? Our website, which is internationalrightsadvocates.org, has updates on all of our cases and other things that we're trying to accomplish. So please look, look us up and uh, uh, reach out to me. Thank you. Thanks so much for your insights, Terry. We are going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back with a few last headlines for you. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I am here with John Kiriakou. John, I had some headlines I wanted to talk about, and then I got distracted by this terrible story about a man in Colorado who appears... He was not a U.S. citizen. He's a national... Oh, I guess he's a citizen of the U.S., the U.K., and New Zealand. So, lucky him. Yeah. (laughs) Um, 22 years old, he crashed his car and was very clearly having a a mental breakdown. He thought that he was being chased by shadow figures. Uh, you know, he, he was terrified and saying he was in danger. He said, I, I love you for being with me to the 911 dispatcher. He called after he crashed his car. He was asking for help, talking to the cops. As they as they come out to respond to the call, the cops are saying, we're not going to shoot you. He has said, I'm going to keep my hands visible. I have I have weapons in the car. Like He had a mallet and knives and stuff. Right. Uh, two knives, a hammer and a rubber mallet. Nothing he can shoot the cops with. Right. Um, but he was too terrified to get out of the car. Um, he had his hands on the dashboard. Apparently, one of the officers drew a gun after seeing a knife and told him to get out of the car now. Uh, and then he got more and more paranoid. Anyway, this this ended up in um, officers smashing the car door open to try to drag him out. He picks up a knife, uh, and it ends with the officers shooting him, shooting him dead after he freaked out. Just so sad that, you know, you weren't able to help this 
person who wasn't able to fire at you. I was having a, anyway, so I got distracted there. I had other things I wanted to talk about and then how'd you read that? Um, I did, I did want to mention this, um, border skirmish yeah. between Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan. Right. We talked about it briefly yesterday on the show. It's gotten worse. Yeah. And again, like not, not unheard of, not really uh, that uncommon. They have a very, very long border, uh, with a whole lot of disputed areas. Um, I will say back in, uh, I think last year, there was a really serious confrontation over, over the border, uh, in which, yeah, there, there was some concerns that it could actually spread out into a wider confrontation. Honestly, hard to see how a conflict benefits either Kyrgyzstan or Tajikistan. Tajikistan especially is an incredibly poor country. And Kyrgyzstan also very poor. Um, So yeah, but seems seems worth mentioning. Kyrgyzstan did not report any casualties. I think Tajikistan says uh, uh, one of their border guards, uh, they exchanged fire. I don't know that anyone was actually hurt. Unbelievable. Yeah. You know, yesterday we were talking about uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan. We said that there were what, 49 uh, Armenians killed. Uh, there was a ceasefire, which apparently lasted about a minute and a half, and now it's over 100 uh, killed. Yeah. Now, that's a lot less than the 4,000 that were killed in 2020 when they actually went to war, but this this is not heading in the right direction. No, it's really not. And again, the, the geopolitical consequences are very interesting to to contemplate, especially, you know, the role, the mm-hmm. role of Turkey and Russia. Yes. Uh, you know, the role the United States uh, and NATO, the West, chooses not to play when it comes to some democracies under attack compared yeah. to other democracies under attack. And you really don't hear very much about uh, about Armenia and our need no. to protect poor Armenia from uh, right. the threats it faces from Azerbaijan. Yeah. So one to keep watching, probably a more uh, a more globally consequential conflict potentially than um this border skirmish. Yeah. Um I thought this was a sort of interesting uh story in the New York Times. It's just it's a story about in the New York Times about uh Russia and Saudi Arabia and that relationship. Um the headline was ostracized by the West, Russia finds a partner in Saudi Arabia. I just think it's interesting that in any time before February, you could have sort of flip-flopped those two names, yeah. right? Russia and Saudi Arabia. Who's who's ostracized by the West right now? Yes. Uh, so, yeah, saying that uh, Saudi Arabia's kingdom holding company has invested more than $600 million, uh, in three Russian energy companies last winter, which is interesting. Um, I also have seen, uh, I think it was oilprice.com asking whether... OPEC's next next move will be to cut production even further. Because Maybe. because they're our friends. Yeah, right, exactly. Exactly. Um uh, is anything uh, I have a I have another story to tell you, John, unless you're dying to get a word in edgewise no, no. here. Go right ahead. Did you see this story about um how it, it, a girl who was uh, initially charged she was charged with first degree murder as a 17-year-old uh, for in 2020, killing a 37-year-old man. She pleaded guilty to manslaughter and willful injury. But the story that has come out is that, um, you know, she says that she was, she was 15 years old when she stabbed this man to death. Yes. And she had been a runaway 
who was seeking to escape an abusive home life. She was sleeping in the hallway of an apartment building and a much older man, well, 28 year old man took her in and then began trafficking her to other men for sex. Yes. So this man that she killed was one of those men. uh, And she just reached a breaking point after having been abused by this man, in addition to many others, uh, Police and prosecutors are are not disputing that she was assaulted and trafficked, but they're just saying this man was asleep when when she stabbed him. He wasn't an immediate danger to her. Uh, the court ordered her to pay the family of the man that she killed $150,000. Can you imagine? Yeah. Apparently now a GoFundMe have raised enough money to cover that. Wow. Yeah. Good. Yeah. And her prison sentence has been has been deferred. Right. So she's on she's on probation. Uh, She could be sent to prison to face a 20 year term if she violates the terms of her probation. But apparently a court decided the circumstances under which she committed this crime, uh, you know, warrant a certain amount of uh, leniency, to say the least. Right. And understanding. This is something that so few Americans understand is that we have slavery and we have human trafficking in the United States, and we don't have the laws that are necessary to protect the victims of human trafficking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you see also that there were four convictions yesterday in January 6th? Yeah. How do you like that? Yeah. Uh, They were bench trials, and uh, they were all found guilty. There was one guy who was found not guilty of three of the charges against him. Uh, What did these guys in was that there was video of them attacking the police and they yeah. said that they weren't attacking the police that they were the, that the crowd had pushed them into the police that was they just pushed me forward with my clear. hands and i'm just holding my yeah. hands in front of me and fists and i can't the meantime, help there's video of them bashing the cops with with riot uh uh shields yeah and yeah 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 up to eight years is what yeah we'll see when the sentencing uh comes around yep um, I think we're going to have to leave it there, John. Uh, yeah, tomorrow we're, we're going to talk time. a lot more about this uh, this labor uh, dispute and this potential rail strike. We'll see if Marty Walsh was able to make any headway in those negotiations. I think tomorrow we're also going to get more into that story of uh, the Hasidic education system taking quite a lot of state money and not providing a basic education for this care. Yes. So I'm looking forward to those conversations. Big, big surprise. That and lots of... Other stories coming up tomorrow. In the meantime, thanks to everyone who spoke to us today. Thanks to our producers and engineers. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to all of you for listening. We will see you tomorrow. 